Good evening. So glad that each one of you are here this evening. As we get started, want to Isaiah chapter fifty-five, verse six says, "Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near." I invite you to do just that this evening. As we worship God, let's seek Him, seek His face, ask Him to uh, speak to us tonight as we minister to Him in adoration and worship. Let's stand together. Father God, we are here to seek you this evening. We are here to give you our lives and to uh, find out more of who you are and what you've done for us. We love you deeply this evening. Thank you for meeting with us here tonight and being with us. Holy Spirit. Thank you. 
same King of glory came to earth. He gave his life. He rose again. He's worthy to be praised. Remember those bonds that we called sin and shame. They were like prisons that we couldn't escape. But he came and he died and he rose. Those bonds are well
His name is above every name. 
the God who we serve, the King of glory, who is for us, not against us, who walks every step of life with us. He is the one that's lifted up.
with us. You are pleased with our worship and you receive our worship as an offering to you. God, we are your people and we desire to see Jesus each and every moment of each and every day to see you as we go throughout our day and the little things to see you throughout our day and big things, how you guide us, how you lead us, how you help us make decisions, how you give us rest, how you provide our every need according to your glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And we are persuaded that you will continue to do your good work in us that you have begun until that day that you bring us home. We worship you. Now as we look into your word this evening, we would see Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Amen. Well, welcome, welcome all of you that are watching online. I would encourage you, if you, if for those of you that are online watching tonight, whether you're live or whether you pick this up during the week, if you could leave some comments, let us know that you're here and and, and watching it, so we know how to. Best connect and minister to you. A couple of things I want to bring to your attention. Um, one, if you haven't already seen Jesus Revolution, the movie, um, the the story about uh, the start of Calvary Chapels and, and Greg Glory, and 
and the revival that took place during the late, late 60s and early 70s with, with that. It's playing in town and, and Scott, I encourage you to go see it. Wendy and I went and saw it on Sunday and it was, it was really kind of a, a, a bittersweet for me because I, I got saved under Chuck Smith, went to Calvary Chapel for a bit and yeah, no Greg Glory and, and all of that. And it was really a great celebration. And if you want to see what revival really looks like in a really condensed form, then watch it. You, you really need to go because you, you will be moved to really understand what sharing your faith can do. The other thing that I want to, uh, uh, two things. One, on March 25th at Bethany Lutheran, which is right at the end of Church Lane out here, they're going to be having a gospel quartet uh, night. We have some flyers that are on the counter. And so if you're into gospel music, um, and, and the quartet's going to be there, so it's going to be really cool. And so we want to encourage you to get plugged in with that. And the last thing I want to remind you of is uh, getting signed up for Israel. If you're planning on going and you want to get your deposit in, one of the questions was, can I, can I sign up if I haven't got my passport stuff to yet? And the answer is yes. We found out you can. So I want to get you get your deposits in because they're going to be looking at getting the, the bulk of the seats uh, for the plane here coming up next month. So a bunch of things going on. We're going to continue in our study through, in journeying through the Bible. We're going to begin Galatians tonight. Yeah, fasten your seatbelts because we're actually going to pick up some steam as we kind of go through these. Tonight will be a, uh, just in chapter 1, but really we're going to be taking a look at, at all of these epistles that are there. And I'm excited about what God's doing with this. And so we're, it, we're beginning in Galatians and kind of understanding Galatians that is there. Galatians is not a city. Galatia is a region. And so I want to kind of orient you with a map that we have to give you an idea. Now, we just got back from Turkey, and this whole area is Turkey that is all in this whole area, but it's not named that in Jesus' time or in Paul's time. So we were down, and here are the seven churches. You've got Ephesus, Sardis, Smyrna. Uh, we were down in Miletus, Laodicea, Colossae, uh, we flew right in here in Cappadocia. We were in hot air balloons. Galatia is this area in the green. It was a region that was there. There was a northern section and a southern section. And in Paul's first and second missionary trips, third missionary trip, he would come through, and, and so you have Antioch City. So he would go up, follow this route, land here, and then he would go through. And if you've been with us at all in going through Acts on Sunday you're going to start being able to picture how all of this fits together. We're finishing up Acts now, but we covered this in depth and this area that is there. So Paul traveled all throughout this area in Acts chapter 13 and 14, establishing these churches that are there in this region. Um, in fact, in Acts 18.23, it says, And having spent some time there, he left and passed successively through the Galatian region, Phrygia and strengthened the disciples. And so we're reading a letter that Paul would have written about 48 A.D. as he was writing back to the churches after he had been there. He opens the letter in Galatians 1, 1, in this, and he says, to the churches, or actually 1, 2, to the churches of Galatia, to this whole region. Now, he opens the letter nice, in chapter 1. 
in chapter 3, he gets a little irritated with them. Oh, you foolish Galatians, who has so easily bewitched you? Which helps us to understand the reason for the letter and why the letter is there. He's writing to these churches that are there that were struggling. Now, as I said, there's, there's much debate on really who Paul was writing to. Was he writing to the, the people in the northern region or to the southern region? And the scholars will debate all, all along. But what makes sense is that Paul was writing a letter to the churches that he planted, that he had gone to. So we're going to go with the southern region that is in there. Um, it, there's a really strong view that Paul wrote Galatians sometime after returning to Syria, Antioch, and before going to the Jewish council and meeting with James and the Jewish council to be able to be sent out. So the timeline, as again, as I said, is about 48 A.D. Now, when you take a look at Galatians, in all of Paul's letters, keep in mind, we, we read them as books of the Bible. But these were actual letters that Paul would write to believers addressing issues that were going on within their group. The letter of, to those in Galatia was to be a circular letter. It was to go and be read at all the different house churches that were all there because they were all kind of struggling with the same thing. And so within this, he was writing this letter for a personal defense of himself because one of the things that was happening was the Judaizers, those that were Jews, were following after Paul. And they were coming in and they were saying, yeah, let me tell you about this Paul guy. He, he, I, we really question his authority. We question the fact that he's even an apostle. We question his teaching. In fact, you know, he's not really giving you all of the gospel. It's fine. You can believe in Jesus and, and the gospel message that is there. But there are some things that you need to do in addition to what he's telling you. And so... Paul's opponents, these Judaizers, were doing something that was horrific. They were determined that the ceremonial laws, the diet, the adhering to holidays, all needed to be added to these Gentiles to make them complete. Why? Because in their mind, you couldn't be completely saved unless you were a Christian that converted to Judaism. Keep in mind, these were Gentiles. These were not Jews. So they had Judaism as the premier faith. And they were okay with these Gentiles doing the Christian thing, but they really needed to be completed to become Jews. So they were putting on the backs of all of these Gentiles that didn't grow up in Judaism, all the laws of Judaism, to get them to a place of, of, of being complete in their eyes. Not in God's eyes, but in their eyes. Within this, So it really was the idea of, well, let's do the gospel plus the law. Let's, it's a, we, we'll accept the gospel, but you really need to add the law to it within this. And so within this, Paul is going to speak in the letter of Galatians to provide spiritual freedom to people, to keep them free, to keep, and, and to defend who he, who he really is. Question. Is spiritual syncretism a bad thing? Nod your head yes. What is syncretism? 
It's when you take two faiths that are different and you merge them together to complete them or to make another faith that is there. To try to synchronize two systems of belief. And so what ends up happening is you have this this spiritual syncretism of this Jewish Christian syncretism that is, is trying to happen. Another thing that you can think about on syncretism is when you take this, that which is secular and that which is spiritual and you try to synchronize those views. We call them a social view or a social gospel. Is that happening in our world today? Absolutely. People are taking Christianity and they're trying to synchronize world concepts, worldviews, secular concepts into the Christian doctrine or Christian faith, the essentials of the faith, and trying to make a social gospel and say, well, no, this is the gospel that you need to accept. And so they'll synchronize and say, well, I'm a Christian, but I want to add this social experience or I want to add this personal experience. Or, you know, the Bible was good, but it really isn't relevant for today. So let's synchronize that which is relevant today what we determine relevant, and let's add it to Christianity within that. And now we have Christian fill-in-the-blank. Is there a problem with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. There is a problem even in uh, Paul's day later on where the Gnostics were trying to synchronize Gnosticism into Christianity. And so we see this all the time. It's a battle that we got to wage all the time. And so Paul would have this specific pastoral agenda in his letters. They were to be corrective. They were instructional. They were encouraging. Now, there's a number of different ways you can outline Galatians. One of the simple ways that you can look at it is we're going to look at it from a position of Paul's history. Christian theology, and ethics. You could also take a look at it from in Galatians. What did God do with Paul? What do we believe? And what does God command? Which isn't necessarily a bad way to outline most books. What was God doing? What does the book teach me? And what does God command me to do within that? And so it's a really easy way to work through that. So let's jump right in into the greetings portion. It's, remember, it's a letter, so letters are always going to have somewhat of a greeting. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor from the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And to all the, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, so that he might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever. Amen. That, the book doesn't end there. It's the introduction. And he gives this introduction, and he starts out, and he says, Paul, an apostle. It's a very abrupt beginning. Galatians is, is an interesting book because he doesn't identify, it's not like he's writing a letter to a single person or to a single city, to a region, which means it's to everybody. But he says, Paul, an apostle. Now, what's an apostle? 
An apostle or apostolo is one who is sent on mission, one who is sent on purpose. He's an ambassador. So he's declaring his apostolic authority right from the beginning. Why? Because the reason why he's writing the letter is because the Judaizers are questioning his authority. So in the introduction, he's establishing his, his authority and challenging them. And, and within this, he wants them to understand that he is there for them. The other thing that is interesting in here is in verse 3, grace to you and peace from our Father. What is he going to address? Well, the problem against the Judaizers is that they were teaching the law and adding the law, which is not grace. It's salvation by works. And so he is bringing that in. He's laying this out. Now, most readers would have heard about Paul. But in Galatia, they probably hadn't seen Paul. There was this... Whenever you have an enemy, the enemy is going to try to put you down, isn't he? He's going to try you... The whole idea of the enemy is he's going to try to make you little in the other person's eyes. Which wasn't really hard to do because Paul was the small guy. In fact, um, even though he was a spiritual giant, according to second century writings, Paul is described like this, quote, A man of small stature, with a bald head, crooked legs, in a good state of body, with eyebrows meeting, and a nose somewhat hooked. Full of friendliness, and for now he appeared like a man, and now he had the face of an angel. Second century's writing. Well, he's a short, bow-legged guy with a unibrow, with a big nose. Now, we say that because in Paul's day, they poke fun. Now, it's encouraging, because you don't have to be beautiful on the outside to be used by God. Which is a good thing. We all qualify, thank you. But we think about this, and, and, and Paul was mighty in stature, but even in Paul's day they poked fun of him. For example, in 2 Corinthians 10.10, Paul in writing to the church of Corinth says, For they say, Paul's saying this about himself in his letter to the church of Corinth, His letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive. And his speech contemptible. In other words, ain't much. And Paul's writing, he says, and they say, I'm not much. Within that. The other thing that was being challenged was this, and as I said, the apostolic authority. Paul is this self-proclaimed apostle. You really don't need to believe in him. He really isn't one of the twelve. His, his title is self-given. He really, he really is not who he is. And who he appeared, you really don't have to listen to him. You need to listen to us because we're from Jerusalem. And that's what they were saying. They were saying, Paul called himself a, a, an apostle. Well, he does use the title apostle. Why? Because it was afforded to him by Jesus. It was given to him by Jesus. But he doesn't name drop the apostle all the time. In fact, throughout Scripture, in his writings, he will call himself a slave. He will call himself a prisoner in chains. He, he didn't use the title to beat people up with, but he did declare apostolic authority when he needed to in order to be able to establish truth within that. And so this ambassador, by definition, is one who takes a message of 
the king and serves the other people. And it was by divine appointment. We're going to understand that as Paul lays out his divine appointment in Acts chapter 9. Within this. Have you ever felt like you were unimportant? Like, what I really have to say, is anybody going to listen? You know? I have that feeling every Sunday morning, every Wednesday night. Is anybody listening? And you think about that. But then, like three weeks ago, I have a young man that walks into church and comes to faith in Jesus Christ. Was it anything about me? No, it was a God thing. God woke him up in the morning and said, go to church. He comes to church. God speaks to him and he gets saved. I just happened to be the conduit. But the fact of the matter is, God called me to open my mouth. God calls you to open your mouth. God calls you to speak. And speak the message that God gives you. That authority to be that ambassador. Now, is the office of apostle still current today? The answer is no. The official apostolic authority office, the way it was structured, no. But, is the function still present? Yes. You're all sent with a mission within that. But the, the structure has changed. Why? Because we have the written word now. And the apostles were to bring the word that they were taught directly in that apostolic authority until the scriptures were complete that was there. We know that Paul's message was from Jesus. And he writes in 1 Corinthians 15.3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture. As Paul would receive from the Lord the gospel message, then he gave. Your message that you take out is not your message. Do not give your message. Give God's message. Well, what does that mean? That means you've got to spend time with God to get the word. And then you have to be sensitive to what the Holy Spirit says and speak what the Holy Spirit tells you to speak within that. People don't need to know your opinion. They need to know God's truth. And that's what we need to bring in. Paul did that. So he was appointed by Jesus. And it's interesting, in his opening, Paul, an apostle, in this parenthetical statement, not from man or through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ, note, and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Did you pick up in the introduction where Paul actually gives the gospel message in his introduction? He starts out right out of the gate. This is the theology that we're going to talk about, that Jesus Christ, who died and rose again, and then later on, at verse 3, tells us, or verse 4, who gave himself for our sins, so he might rescue us from this present age. Isn't that the gospel message? Jesus died, and he brings grace and peace, rose again, and he died so that you would be rescued from your sins. There's your gospel message. And he does it right in the introduction within that. And that's powerful to me. And he was appointed to bring the gospel. And so he establishes these credentials to all the brethren in Galatia. Grace and peace to you in verses 2 through 5. Paul is, always had a team around him. He would have Luke or he'd have different people around him always supporting him. Why? One, because physically he needed it. He needed help. But two, Paul was a team guy. 
he would have a ministry team. He wasn't a lone ranger. In fact, the, the few times that you see Paul alone by himself, he didn't really like it. He needed that encouragement from others to be there. Sometimes Paul in his letters would mention the names. Other times he wouldn't. And he says this in verse 2, And all the brethren who are with me. Why? One, because it talks about the church universal, the inclusive church that's there. This word church is used here, ecclesia. Ecclesia means those that are called out. So in the introduction he says, hey, we're the church over here, and I'm writing to you, church over there. But we're all, started, we're all part of the same church. And this unity of faith, the community of believers that are gathered together, common word, common work. What were the Judaizers trying to do? Break the church up. Divisive with their, their extra theology. And so, again, this, this letter would circulate to deal with this. This phrase, grace and peace to you. It's a common Pauline introduction. What is grace? If you were to define, somebody asks you and they say, hey, you know, I, I heard about this Christian word, this Christianese. You know what Christianese is? Christianese is that special foreign language to the people of the world that they can't speak. Only Christians can speak it and understand it, though. Grace. What is grace? What was this grace? Grace means unmerited favor. I've taught you this acronym. I'll teach you it again. Grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. G-R-A-C-E. Grace. Grace and peace. Enre. Enre is the inner peace that has. It's not peace from conflict. It's peace in conflict. This grace. This unmerited favor that God has given to you. I'm invoking God's unmerited favor towards you. And God's peace, that you'll have peace in whatever conflict that you're in. You'll have the peace of God, as we read later, that passes all understanding that would garrison or guard your heart and your mind. Does this sound like a letter from a guy who's really angry? Or does, No. He loves them. He loves them as their own. It's a, it's a, it's a blessing. Very familiar, and Paul uses... It as a, as a deviation from what's called the ironic blessing. I know you're all familiar with it. Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 and 25. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And there's more to it in that. And you look at that and that's the Lord bless you and keep you. That's that blessing. Could you invoke blessing upon others? Sure. Should you? Yes. Why? Because you've been blessed. And so Paul, as one who is blessed, writes this letter and blesses them right out of the gate. And he loves them. And he presents the gospel all the way through this. And then he starts into the meat of the letter. Why am I writing to you? Verses 6 through 10. I'm amazed that you were so quickly deserting Him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. 
But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed or literally anathema. And we'll unpack that in a bit. As we have said before, and so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you the gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or God? Am I striving to please men? If I were still striving to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So Paul comes right out of the gate. And I love Paul because he doesn't mince words. He gives a really nice introduction. He says, okay, now let's get down to business. What is the problem? The problem is the people in the region of Galatia are on the edge of a crisis of faith. What's the crisis of faith? The crisis of faith is when you stop believing that which you've been given and you start turning your back or you start questioning. Do I really believe this? Is this really true? The crisis of faith happens often. You may have a crisis of faith when you leave the study tonight and you walk out and you're going, wow, I don't really know if I believe that. You may have a crisis of faith when difficulties come and you go, you know, God, you promised me and the promises aren't happening. Difficulties happen. Crises of faith can come in in all different ways. And Paul says here in verse 6, he says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him. Now, why is Paul saying that? Because if the timing is true and he has just gotten back into Syria, he got word about an, an apostasy that is happening with these people in Galatia, where they're starting to turn their back on the very gospel, and they're listening to these other people adding to their faith. What was the crisis of faith? You were saved by grace through faith, not of your work, not works. It wasn't works-based. It was grace that is in there. And so he was amazed at how quickly, and it's interesting... They're abandoning who? You're abandoning Him, the one who called you by grace. That's why we know it's a struggle with law. That you're abandoning the one who called you by grace, that you were to be saved by grace. And they're turning their back on God. Have you ever met somebody where they got to that place where they just started turning their back on God? And, and they're like, I don't know if I believe. Those are those times of the crisis of faith. And Paul brings him back and he says, but you were saved by grace. It's this gift that God has given to you. God had done a great work in Galatia. Many people were coming to faith. The church was growing throughout the region. Yet they were turning away to a different gospel. And I thought, well, who does that? Who turns away and starts believing other things? Immature believers. Immature believers do. Why? Because they're not mature and grounded in the faith to be able to say, what you're telling me is bogus. What you're telling me sounds kind of good. You mean if I have enough faith that whatever I ask God, He has to do it for me? If I have enough faith, then whatever illness I might get has to be healed? If I have enough faith, I'll never get sick. 
If I have enough faith, I'll never be poor. Is that true? No. You need to be able to live your best life now. Enjoy your life now to the uttermost. God wants you to enjoy your life now. Enjoy as many things as you can. Is that true? No, you don't find that in Scripture. But churches are filled by prosperity doctrine. By health and wealth and all of these different things. And people listen to it. Why? Because they're immature and they're having their ears tickled by the things that make them feel good within this. Immature and new believers are spiritually fragile and very open to false teachers who distort the truth of God for their own gain to try to bring people out, to draw people away from themselves. And that's why it's imperative that you have to be taught the essential truth. This young man that came to faith, I'm going to start meeting with him tomorrow and we're going to meet for nine weeks straight. Why? So that we can go through the essentials of Christianity. The essentials of faith. Why? Because he's a newborn baby and as a newborn spiritual baby, he needs to grow. If you've never been discipled by somebody, you should be. If you have been discipled by somebody, you still should be. And if you know people that are immature in their faith, you need to disciple them. You need to grow. We do a really poor job where people come to faith and say, great, you're a Christian, now figure it out on your own. And that's difficult. You, you're not going to get mature unless you are really learning the essentials of faith, studying good doctrine, and becoming mature in the truth of God so that you won't be deceived. Because Satan is good. There are so many... I did a Google search on Christian cults. There are so many I didn't even want to try to count them. And it doesn't matter. And, and, and they're being pushed by movie stars and, and all of these things that you can better yourself through science and positive thinking and, and, and all of this stuff. Paul would later say, you foolish Galatians... Who has bewitched you? And, and the idea of foolish there, and we'll get into it when we get to it, but the, I want to bring it up because the word foolish, anoetos, is the word, and it means people without understanding. Are you smart enough when a, when a cultist comes knocking on your door? Hi, I'd like to tell you about Jesus. What should be your first question? Which Jesus are you talking about? And usually the way they're dressed will tell you which one. Well, we would like to talk with you. Okay. I'll talk with you. I had a couple of them talk, come to my door one time, not too long ago. Came to my door. And I'd love to talk to you. Well, I really can't talk right now. But I, I'll tell you what, if you come back, I will talk with you all day long. And we'll use the Bible. I'm not going to use your book. We're going to use the Bible. But you have an open invitation. Come back. And we'll talk. I'll talk with you about what's in the Bible. But have you ever read our book? Yeah, I have. Parts of it. 
How did it make you feel? Like throwing up? I was honest. They've never come back to my door. But we look at this. And, and so he uses this idea. And the word, I'm amazed that you've been deserting him or abandoning him. The word abandon literally means to leave your country and go to another country and to be part of that country's nationality. So it would be like saying, you've abandoned the United States, moved to Mexico, and you're supporting the Mexican government. You're leaving Christianity. I'm so amazed that so quickly you're leaving Christianity and you're joining these legalists and supporting them within this. You're abandoning that faith. It's as strict as a political traitor or a military deserter. Now, the caution that Paul has in this is he uses the verb tense, says you're in the process of doing this, you haven't completely done it yet. So is there hope? Yes. That's why he's going to talk to them. The greatest danger to a church really is not the persecution that comes from without the church. You know where the greatest danger of the church is? People that get into the church that start spreading false doctrine from within the church. The attacks from now we can see. But people come in with false doctrines and false teachings and false agenda from within the church. That's very dangerous because they poison the immature. In fact, Paul uses this word disturbing. These people that are disturbing you, (coughs) that are creating the spiritual doubt, causing you to question some of these things that are there. These wolves in sheep's clothing. You know what should be done with a wolf that's in any shape or form, but... When you find a wolf in sheep clothing, you don't try to fix him. Well, there's, it's called the practice of the three S's. Shoot, shovel, and shut up. You can't rehabilitate a wolf. A wolf is a wolf within this. And these Jewish people were coming in and they were trying to proselytize these Gentiles to obey the kosher laws, to... To, to adhere to the Jewish worship in the calendar and say, the only day you can worship is Sabbath. Only. And you have to obey these laws. And the Jewish laws. Yes, we believe in Jesus, but you have to obey the laws. Dangerous. Paul would write to the church in Colossae about such a thing. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 to 18, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard of food, or drink, or in respect to a festival, or new moon, or Sabbath day. These things are mere shadows of what's to come, but the substance belongs to the Lord. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, or taking his stand on the visions he has seen, or inflated words without cause in fleshly mind. In other words, they were priding themselves because they were obeying these laws that are just shadows. So don't let other people judge you that way. Within this. If you want to have bacon, eat bacon. That's okay. But they weren't allowed to be able to do that because the Judaizers say, well, it's not kosher. And if you really want to be a, a, a real Christ follower, if you really want to follow God, you're going to adhere to the laws of God's people. Well, to a new believer they, that doesn't know any better, they're going to go, yeah, that sounds good. And they would buy into it. But it was creating a disturbing effect upon them because it, now they're in conflict. 
In verses 8 to 10, Paul does something that's pretty amazing. If you look at it, he says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you another gospel, a gospel contrary to what we preach to you, he is to be accursed. That word is anathema. The word anathema, if you were here on a Sunday when we talked about it, it really means to call down a divine curse from God upon something. But if you notice, he classifies himself in this. It's important. He says to the Galatians, if we, the ones who brought you into faith, teach you anything contrary to the gospel we originally gave you, we deserve to be divinely cursed. And why would he include we? Have you ever met a pastor or a teacher that started out really good doctrinally and theologically and then started deviating and started following some false teachings, false doctrines, became self-absorbed in their own press and all these other things and started going the wrong way? Paul says, look it. I don't care who it is. I don't care who it is. If anybody teaches you something contrary to the, the original gospel that we gave you, they should be cursed. Whether it was us or an angel, may God punish them. Or anyone, regardless of who it is, that distorts the gospel within this. Even if it's an angel or a messenger of God talking about the celestials. And you think about this. What is distorting the gospel? Adding anything to the gospel. Okay, we get Paul. What does he mean by angels? Can you think of a Christian cult that uses a specific angel named Moroni to add to their gospel? Absolutely. So what Paul says is, I don't care if it's Gabriel, Michael, or some future spiritual entity, Moroni. Can you think of another angel that distorts the gospel? name is Lucifer. Anybody. That's how narrow the gospel must be. How simple it must be. And we need to keep it focused on the completed work of Jesus. And so Paul brought himself open under that curse or any of these other speech, spiritual leaders. He would later write to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 3.11. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. What is the only foundation of faith? Jesus Christ. Nothing else. Jesus Christ. And that's essential. And so, as I said, Paul would put the angels under him. In fact, it, it, it's amazing. We live in a world that is surrounded. Do you realize that there are angels present even right now? There are. Do you realize that there are demons present right now? And there are. I think they're outnumbered right now, though. The Word of God's going out. But there are, there are angels that are present, that are ministering to you. But there are also demons, and their job is to mess with you. In, in Jude, verse 6, it says, And angels who did not keep their own domain... But abandon their proper abode. He's kept in eternal bonds under the darkness for the judgment of the great day. Do you know what's going to happen in the end times when the church is taken out? These angels that are really bad 
that are chained up are going to be released. And they're going to deceive many that is there. Paul's passion, if you haven't picked it up already, Paul's passion is that this group of people that lived in Galatia would stop being deceived by false teachers. Why? Because they were being robbed of their joy of their salvation and having chains and burdens put upon them that were not necessary. Paul ends this section here. He says, for with, and Paul can be a little sarcastic sometimes. For am I now seeking the favor of men or God? What's the answer? God. Or am I striving to please men? The answer, rhetorical answer is no. And if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Or in other words, if I was trying to please men, I'd get another job. Because this one's not working out as far as pleasing men. I'm making a lot of people mad. I'm not saying this to please men. And he's using the sarcasm that, that is there to say, look, at this is important. This is imperative. Revealing truth. And the truth is, all men are sinners that need a Savior. And His name is Jesus. Who has died to give man hope in that future. So now Paul, as he's addressed the problem, and he says, here's the problem. We've got these guys coming in. And you're falling away. You're getting in this place where you're deceived. You're struggling in your faith. And they're challenging my authority or my ability to bring the word. Let's get that out of the way. So the next part of his letter, and we're going to do part of it tonight, and then we'll pick up in chapter 2 next week, is this. Let's go back to the credentials so that you can believe the word that I give to you. I've already opened the door on who is a false teacher. <coughs> Let me answer the question why you should believe me. Within this. And so he's going to defend not himself, but he defends the source of his message. Another way that you can check a cultist is where did you get this from? Where did you get this from? This message you're telling me came from an angel that brought you golden tablets, and you've got to look through a peepstone and understand it. Okay, where are the tablets? Well, we can't find the tablets. Where's the angel? Well, I don't know. There's a bunch of gold ones that are set on top of a building someplace. Paul says, I'll tell you where I got my message from. I'll tell you why I'm an apostle. Because I got it from Jesus himself. Directly. The source of the gospel has to be preached from Jesus. And so, in verse 11, he says, For I would have you to know, brethren that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For neither I received it from men, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Is there any doubt where he gets the gospel from? Pretty clear. Where he says that the source of the gospel that he got from Jesus. And, and so he says, if anybody preaches a different gospel than what I preach, they're getting it from a different source, because the gospel that I'm preaching came straight from Jesus. Therefore, I can declare this apostolic authority. No, I'm not one of the eleven. Now, keep in mind, what was their argument? Paul can't be an apostle because he didn't sit under Jesus like the other, I'd say twelve, but one of them died. The other eleven. Matthias was added but to make twelve, but we really don't uh, see him there. Paul would be an apostle as he would call himself 
apostle out of time. Out of time. Selected by God. And so the Judaizers were claiming that Paul was an independent evangelist, and they argued because he wasn't with the eleven, he wasn't there. Now you say, well, Kerry, why is that important? Paul's dead. He's been dead for a long time. Well, we have Paul's words. But the, the other aspect is this. What is Paul saying? I got the word straight from Jesus, not from traditions of man. When somebody comes and they say, hey, this is what you need to do, you say, well, why do we do this? Well, we've always done it that way. This is our religious practice. Okay, but why did it start? Well, we don't know. This is what my father did and my grandfather did and my grandfather did. This is the way we've always done it. Years and years and years ago, there was a time when babies were being baptized to be saved. Do you know why that all started? Because during the time of the Black Plague, children were dying at a horrendous rate. And the church wanted to encourage parents who were losing their children to baptize their children in order to guarantee that they would be saved if they died to the plague. So they created the sacrament of baptism in order to allow these children to, through the sacrament, not through faith, but through the sacrament, be saved through baptism. So they started baptizing children. And then they said, well, now we need to figure out how to get them to a place of their own confession. Hmm, how are we going to do that? Well, let's put them through catechism when they become a teenager. And then they can have what's called a confirmation. So we'll add confirmation to this. So now they're saved, but we're confirming that they're saved through confirmation. And that was their workaround. A guy by the name of John Hess and many others were going, I don't know about this. You know, I've, I came to real faith much later. I, I, I think I really need to be baptized now that I really know what I believe and believe. And so Hess and many others started to be rebaptized. The church, the evangelical church, said, You can't do that. Well, what was the problem with that? It was going against their tradition. And so you know what they started doing? Anybody that got rebaptized was being put to death as a heretic. It was a movement called the Anabaptists, or the rebaptists that were there. Because they didn't believe if you were baptized as a child that you could be rebaptized as an adult, that it was against the church. Do you understand how bad it can get? And we can even do it ourselves. And so we need to understand, as Paul would say, not to follow religious traditions. We follow what God's Word tells us to do. And we stick to it within this. The written Word of God. Paul would warn them about placing themselves under some other teacher. And he says, for... This, I would have you to know, brethren, the gospel which was preached by me is not according to men, for I received it not from men, 
but, but from Jesus because Jesus was his teacher. A lot of people will say, well, I don't, I don't need to, to go to church. Yes, you do. If you ever find yourself in a church that doesn't open the Bible and doesn't teach from the Bible, leave. Leave. As a Christian, should you bring your Bibles to church? Yes. Why do we stand and we read God's, God's Word on a Sunday morning especially? Because you need to hear it for yourself, you need to read it for yourself and make sure what I'm teaching is right. You need to understand and you need to check it. There are so many people that don't bring their Bibles to church and they just take for granted and, and that doesn't add to maturity. We need to understand that we need to grow in the faith and knowledge of Jesus and bring your Bible, even if it's on your phone, bring it. But I like the paper one. You get to use it. It's good. I'm kind of old school, I guess, that way. Why? So we know the Word. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. Note, accurately handling the Word of truth. I heard about a uh, Bible teaching institution that has strayed away from that and will be closing their doors in the near future. Why? Because they strayed away from the truth. How many churches stray away from the truth and then end up shutting their doors? Why? Because they don't believe that the Word of God is adequate. Yet God's Word tells us in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training of righteousness. Note, the Henneclaus, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. You want to be spiritually victorious? Know your Bible. Read it. Understand it. This is God's Word speaking to you. This book will teach you through the Holy Spirit. You'll read it. Jesus reveals Himself. He is the Word. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's God's Word that is there. And we put ourselves under the authority of God's Word. And Jesus revealed Himself to Paul to unveil the truth. Paul knew the Old Testament Scriptures, but he didn't understand them in light of Jesus. And so Paul would be taught by Jesus these things. And as I said earlier in 1 Corinthians 15.3, For I delivered to you a first importance... What I've received, that Christ died from the sin, for the sins of our Scripture. When I study, I don't just... If you, would it be a scary thing if I got up here and went like this? Welcome, congregation. I don't know what I'm going to teach today, but... There. That's what we're going to study today. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne. Yeah, I could probably preach that. And buffalo you guys all the way through for like 30 minutes. Are there people that do teaching like that? Sure there are. You need to study to show yourself approved as much as I do. That's why we teach verse by verse expository. You know where we're going to be. You know we're going to be in Galatians 2 next week. You should read all of Galatians and be ready within this. Paul realized that the source of his ministry was Jesus and he explained it to them. That way, notice in verse 13 through the rest of the chapter. Look at how Paul lays it out, actually, 13 um, through, yeah, through the rest of the chapter. For you have heard my former manner, and this is going to be repetitive because we've been in Acts, so you're going to go, I got that. 
For you have heard of my former manner in the life of Judaism and how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and try to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were in the apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. And then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas, which is Peter, and stayed with him 15 days. But I didn't see any of the other apostles except James, the brother of the Lord, who was the leader of the church. Now, parenthetical statement. Now, in what I'm writing to you, I assure you before God, I'm not lying. Then he goes on with the story. And then I went to the, to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But only they kept hearing, quote, He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. So in this first half of Paul's narrative, he says, This is who I was, and you know this. Now, we know this because we've been studying Acts. So, so it's going to be a refresh. We, on Sunday morning, we're going through Paul's testimony more, multiple times. You guys, you guys got this. But Paul gives this personal testimony about his former life, about himself. And why did he do that? To people that already knew him. To prove there is no way possible in his former life that he would even be close to being a Christian. He gave the example, there is no way in my former life that I would even think about being a Christian. I was a Jew above Jews. I was zealous and strict in obeying the laws. In fact, I hated Christians. I made it my personal mission to destroy Christians. And you all know that. You know my reputation within this. Not only that, but I was passionate about keeping the Jewish tradition and laws. Why? Because I was a Pharisee above Pharisees within this. Even in his argument, we did it a couple weeks ago on Sunday, Acts 22.3. I'm a Jew born of Tarsus, of Cilicia, brought up in the city, educated under Gamaliel, strict according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God just as you are today. But then we have this but. And this is a good but. It's a good but in here. Verse 15. But when God who had set me apart even from my mother's womb called me through grace. There's that word grace again. How many times have we heard the word grace? Three times so far. Why? Because he's fighting against people that want to go after the law. And by grace I was set apart according to this divine election for purpose. When did Paul come to faith? Not until he was much, much older. An adult, persecuting Jews. When was he called? Before he was born. God had given him this election. Now what's interesting is we get all hung up in our Calvinists and, 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 and you know, this predestination and, and, and Arminianists and all this other stuff. And Don't get hung up in that. Don't get weirded out over it. Besides... Calvin and Armenia, they're both men anyways. What you've got to understand is that God has a plan and had a plan for Paul 
Chose him before he was born. And he was working on Paul until Paul finally gave in. Until his will was broken and by free will he accepted the Lord Jesus. How do I know that? Because in the conversion account that we just did last week, Jesus said to him, Paul, Paul, how long will you kick against the goads? Will you change now? Nope. Will you change now? Nope. Will you change now? Nope. I've already chosen you. I don't care. I'm not budging. Okay, I'll just keep poking you some more. And keep doing it then. Until he got broken. We've got to understand that spiritual transformation is based on the divine initiative. God seeks you. Question. If you were left to yourself, would you go after God? No. You wouldn't even know that he exists. But Romans 5, 8. But while you were yet a sinner, Jesus died for you. When did God know you before the foundations of the world? Does God have a plan for you? Absolutely yes. So here's the answer. Quit kicking against the goats and just listen to him. Listen to him and obey. Paul finally did. Paul says, I did that. I gave in. And then he told me the plan. Go preach to the Gentiles, which he would do. And he'd been pushing Paul. Paul, in his mind, does this. He says, now I've met this Jesus that I've been persecuting. I finally got to this place and I'm told to go to the Gentiles. How do I do that? I don't know. So what does Paul say? He says, I go off to Arabia. You say, well, wait a minute. In Acts, it said that he went to Damascus. And where is Arabia? So I got another map for you real quick to give you an idea. This is Galatia. Damascus is right here. Paul was coming from Jerusalem to Damascus to persecute the Christians there. Paul's from Tarsus and there's Cilicia, Syria. Now, Arabia or Saudi Arabia would be down in this section down here, Nabatine, or the Nabateans. What is interesting about this is if we were to take this map further down, this area of the Nabateans and the Nabateans goes all the way down to the Sinai Peninsula. Paul says that I went there. Now, we also know based on Acts 9 that he went to Damascus. What did he do? He went to Damascus, told everybody, I know who Jesus is, and he preached Jesus, and he's like, I got to get out of here. And he went for three years into the area of the Nabateans to do what? To learn from Jesus. What did he do? Did Jesus speak to him audibly? We're not told. What, what do we know about Paul? Was Paul a scholar? Did Paul know the Old Testament scriptures? Absolutely. Was the New Testament written? No. The only instruction was based off of what the disciples had done and taught. So within this. Was it possible to understand Jesus from the Old Testament? Shake your head, yes. How do we know that? Jesus said it himself, or did it himself. Acts twenty four twenty seven. Then beginning with Moses, this is, this is Luke's account of what Jesus was doing with the two men on the road to um, Emmaus. Then beginning with Moses, with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in Scripture. 
In the whole Old Testament, you can find Jesus in every single one of the books of the Old Testament. Every single one. All the way through. What did Paul do as a scholar or Pharisee that knew the Scriptures? He went out for three years and sat in the, in, in the sand and said, I need to relook at this. And so he started studying the Scriptures and he started finding Jesus here. Here. How was he finding it? He's saved. And wh- who comes upon saved people? The Holy Spirit, who was teaching Paul. And Jesus is instructing him in all of this. And there's this combination. And we're not told about this private time. You ever wonder why he spent three years there? Why not four? Why not one? Why three? How long did Jesus spend with the disciples training them? Three years. And then at the end of three years, now he's got all the theology of the Old Testament and the Jewish Messiah and Jesus and the fulfillment of prophecy and all of the things concerning his death, burial, and resurrection. He's got all of that. What does he not have? He doesn't have the the accounts of the miracles. So he goes to Jerusalem and he hooks up with Peter for 15 days and goes to Peter and says, Peter, tell me everything about the miracles. Tell me what he taught you in person. And he connects up with James, who is Jesus' brother, who doesn't get saved until after the resurrection, and has a conversation with them. Stays with them a short time. Wanted to join the disciples, and they're like, uh, we don't think so. So, Paul was not allowed to join the disciples. In fact, in Acts chapter 9, verse 26, it says this. And when he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. That was smart. This guy's killing everybody. We don't know if he's really saved. And so within this, we know that that he was sent off, and he would go off to Syria and Cilicia for a long period of time, about 14 years. Would he stop? No, he'd keep doing ministry. If you were keeping a timeline, he was saved in 33 A.D., Went to Arabia from 33 to 35 A.D. Visited Peter and James in 35 A.D. Went to Syria and Cilicia from 35 A.D. to 48 A.D. Which brings us up to where this letter was written. Getting close because he would go out and he would make his first missionary journey on 48. And somewhere between 48 and 50 A.D. we would have this in here. Paul concludes with... This, this parenthetical statement, he says, I'm, not, I'm writing to you, but I'm not lying. Within this. And ends with the amazing testimony that is there in verses 23 and 24. While I was still unknown to the churches, they kept hearing, He who once persecuted us, note, is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of him. What was going on? Paul was preaching the very gospel that he was trying to get rid of. How do you know that somebody is really saved? Look for the change of life over a long period of time. Paul is not destroying the gospel, he's preaching the gospel. The one that once persecuted is transformed. Why should the Galatians listen to Paul and reject the Judaizers? Because Paul has been consistently proving out who he is. We're going to pick up next week in chapter 2 
when he comes back and he gets ready for mission. And then he, so this is who he was, and this is, chapter 2 is what he did. Well, let's pray. God, I thank you that you give to us this example of Paul and the life of Paul to be able to learn from. God, I know that so many times in our lives we get hung up on so many things that we shouldn't. The gospel is simple. That Jesus, you came and you died on the cross for the pay the penalty of our sins. That whosoever will believes in you in their heart and confesses you as Lord with their mouth will be saved. You'll forgive them of their sins, fill them with your spirit, transform their life as you did Paul and lead them to the ministry that you've called them to. Lord, I pray that we all would enter into that time. Lord, we know that there are enemies of our soul and spirit that are after us. May we not fall into their hands, but stand against them. We thank you in Jesus' name. Let's all stand and we'll close. of your week in the Lord.
Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.